Locked On Gamecocks, your daily podcast on the South Carolina Gamecocks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Gamecock Nation, and welcome back to the Locked On Gamecocks podcast, your show for daily headlines and potential storylines on your favorite South Carolina sports teams. I'm your host, as always, Andrew Lyon. And before I get started with today's show, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, where the game starts. And as always, Thank you for making the Lockdown Gamecocks podcast your first listen every day. We are free and available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast daily. So to get into the roadmap for today's show, uh, I'm going to talk about a variety of different topics. I'm going to talk about some MLB draft takeaways for the Gamecocks, which players and high school commits were taken, and who could South Carolina see leave and potentially return to the roster for this next season. And also, I will give you all some of my final overall takeaways from some of the things that took place at SEC Media Days. However, I am not going to start with either of those topics. Um, Today's show is going to be a difficult one because I'm going to have to address uh, a really sad loss, a, a really heartbreaking loss that has happened to the Gamecock family, and that is the unfortunate loss of former Gamecock quarterback Phil Petty. Uh, Phil Petty was a quarterback for the Sacramento Gamecocks from the 1998 through 2001 seasons. He was uh, one of the big catalysts for the South Carolina Gamecock football program, becoming revitalized in the early part of Lou Holtz's time here at South Carolina. And uh, one that, as I'll get into in a little bit, had a lot of accomplishments on the field when he was at South Carolina. Now, all of this news happened very suddenly yesterday morning as uh, the first account that I saw break this news on social media was Sports Talk Media Network, who tweeted out something early at 9.09 a.m. saying that quarterback Phil Petty was in the hospital and, you know, mentioning that he was a Bowling Springs grad and, of course, again, played under Lou Holtz at South Carolina. And he had just recently taken an assistant coaching position at Gray Collegiate Academy in Columbia. And this was followed up with a tweet not too long afterwards at 10.11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time where Sports Talk Media Network tweeted out that they had received news that former Gamecock quarterback Phil Petty had passed away after he had fallen ill apparently on Wednesday. His family was with him during his final moments. Phil Petty, of course, only 43 years old, extremely young in his life, still had a lot of life left to live. And for this to happen so suddenly, uh, it has really uh, put a hole in the heart of Gamecock Nation. Um hearing this heartbreaking news. Now, the reaction from Gamecock Nation to this news was swift, and the best way I can describe the tone of everything that was posted, all the people who spoke about uh, the passing of Phil Petty, was um, utter shock. Um, There was a lot of former teammates and um, people who are associated with the football program who posted heartfelt tributes to Phil Petty. And uh, I'll start off Real quick with Ryan Brewer, who, of course, was a star skill player 
for the Gamecock offense during the time that Phil Petty was the quarterback. And he posted a tweet saying, our teammate, quarterback, and leader, inspiration, and brother, love you more than you know, will miss you dearly. And another teammate of Phil Petty's in Eric Kemry, who happened to be the backup to Phil Petty during his time at South Carolina, tweeted a long tribute thread yesterday, starting off saying, Phil Petty will be missed. He was a competitor and a leader, intelligent, thoughtful, gritty as heck, and our quarterback number one. Though he is no longer here, his spirit lives, and his legacy will remain steadfast at the University of South Carolina. He would go on to further say, Phil took the beating of a 21-game losing streak, got off the ground, wiped the mud off his hands and the grass out of his face mask, and led us to the two most successful seasons in school history at that time. If anyone has embodied the spirit of a Gamecock, it was him. Phil Petty beat Georgia, Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State twice. He loved football and had a great understanding of the game. He made everyone in the huddle believe we could win. He made us all better. Most importantly, Phil was a husband and a father and a loving son. He was kind to strangers and loved talking ball with Gamecock fans. He was so proud of his kids, sending us videos of his son throwing a football an awful lot like his father. For us, that got the privilege to play with him. He was our brother. We shared a brotherhood that never went away and never will. Love you, 14. I'll always be your backup forever to thee. And Connor Shaw, who in his own right was also a legendary quarterback for the University of South Carolina, posted a reaction on Twitter saying, My last interaction with Phil was throwing the ball around with his son on the sidelines before a Carolina game last fall. All we talked about was our families. Really saddened to hear the news today and praying for his family. I know he was very proud of them. And, of course, Shane Beamer also had a reaction to the news as well, saying, So sorry to hear the news of Gamecock football great Phil Petty passing away. Thoughts and prayers to his family. Now, for my thoughts on the passing, the unfortunate passing of uh, former Gamecock quarterback Phil Petty, I will. I am in my very early 20s. Um, and I was basically a toddler when Phil Petty was slinging the pigskin around in williams Bryce Stadium. So I never watched Phil Petty play live, nor have I ever met Phil Petty or interviewed him. But I can at least speak to this. Uh, when I was a kid, my father got a VHS tape one day and brought it home with him. And the VHS tape was about the South Carolina Gamecocks 2001 football season. And the title of the VHS tape was called The Year of the Gamecocks. I'm sure we actually still have it at my parents' house somewhere in a cabinet. Um, and I can remember this VHS tape being brought back. And this was before South Carolina had won 11 games three years in a row, had made it to the SEC championship game. So up until that point, that was the most recent successful stretch of seasons that the Gamecocks had had in a long while. And Again, me being young, I don't recall anything from those years. So my dad, you know, we watched the tape together. And the thing I recall the most about that VHS tape, there was a lot of exciting games, of course, that South Carolina was in, a lot of really close games that they played. And with every big moment that the Gamecocks had on offense in some of those games, number 14 seemed to be involved in some capacity. Phil Petty, um, he had ice in his veins. He was a guy that... No matter what the odds were at that moment in time in the fourth quarter, he would go out there and give it everything he's got. And a lot of times in the latter half of his career, he made things happen. 
and um, he was he was the right guy to be the quarterback from the University of South Carolina. Um, also, and most importantly, from all the secondhand accounts that I have read on social media and heard through word of mouth uh, the other day, Phil Petty was a great man who prioritized his time with his family, and he treated everyone the same way. Again, based on all the accounts of old teammates, friends, and fans who watched him, including my own father. Now, I will talk about some of the biggest moments that Phil Petty did have as a Gamecock quarterback, and he has a lot of achievements. Um, I'll start off with the fact that he ended the 22-game losing streak against New Mexico State at the beginning of the 2000 football season, which, while many opposing fan bases would point that and laugh to say that, you know, you should never tear goalposts down to being New Mexico State, what they don't talk about is the fact South Carolina went 0-11 the year prior. They would go on to go 8-4 and in 2000 for one of the greatest single-season turnarounds in college football history. Now, that part doesn't ever get mentioned, and it's a shame that it doesn't, but... Nonetheless, this was one of the bigger wins for South Carolina during that period of time. Phil Petty in the 2001 season would throw the go-ahead touchdown to wide receiver Brian Scott with around a minute and a half left in the game in Athens to defeat Georgia. He would lead the Gamecocks to victory against number 16 Mississippi State in Starkville in the first college football game after the September 11th attacks had taken place. You talk about emotions in a football game and you're the guy that's expected to handle the football for at least probably half the game, that's a pretty big weight on your shoulders right there. He led a legendary comeback against Alabama in Columbia. The Gamecocks were down 36-24 to with a little less than nine minutes left, and he would lead the Gamecocks on two straight scoring drives, including a seven-yard go-ahead touchdown pass to tight end Rod Trafford with around two minutes left in the game to give the Gamecocks the eventual win. And their first win in school history at that time against the Crimson Tide was such a big deal when it happened back in 2001. He also led the Gamecocks to two straight Outback Bowl victories over the Ohio State Buckeyes. Played some of his best ball in those Outback Bowl games along with Brian Brewer, who was right there beside him. He was also a finalist for the Johnny Unitas Golden Arm Award at the conclusion of the 2001 football season. Now, another thing that I do want to say, um, I have not brought up a number of retirements on this show before. And South Carolina does not retire very many football numbers. Uh, there's only four that have actually been retired in the program's entire history. So, to put it bluntly, it's a very rare occurrence. It doesn't happen very often. Now, there's been a lot of clamoring for the last several years, including from myself, that Connor Shaw's number 14 should eventually be retired because Connor Shaw, of course, is considered to be the best quarterback in school history, the most accomplished quarterback in school history, never lost a game at Williams-Brice, all that good stuff. And Connor Shaw did a lot of great things. And for me being, you know, as young as I am, you would probably be able to understand why I would say, you know, Connor Shaw's number 14. But now having taken time to reflect and to think about everything that Phil Petty did for this school and this football program... If this jersey number, the number 14, ever gets retired, I would hope that South Carolina would choose to retire Phil Petty and Connor Shaw's jersey number, having both names attached to the number instead of just one or the other. Both of them did so much for this football program. They took us to heights we had rarely ever seen before, and both are equally deserving 
of being a part of a ceremony like that. Again, should it ever take place. Um, now, again, I do want to reemphasize, as great of a football player as Phil Petty was for the Gamecocks, he was more than a football player. Um, more importantly, he was a father to Sage and McCoy, and he was also a husband to his wife, Morgan. Um, and again, Phil Petty was just 43 years old, so extremely tragic loss for the Gamecock family. Uh, please keep the Petty family in your thoughts and prayers. Um, even if you're not a person of faith, at least, uh, you know, try to think about them for the next couple of days because, again, 43 years old, uh, gone far too soon, Phil Petty, that is. Um, Phil Petty, forever to thee. You were a great Gamecock, and again, from everything I've seen, you were also a great man and a person to everyone that you ever met. So, of course, I do also have some notes from the Major League Baseball draft that I do want to talk about with all of y'all on this show. Uh, you know, the players that got selected, who could end up going to the minors, who could end up coming back to South Carolina, including their high school commits, and some of my final thoughts from SEC Media Days. But before I do get into all of that, I do want to remind y'all that betonline.net is your number one source for all of your betting stats and sports information. You'll find all the latest sports developments, news, and odds, including college football and NFL futures, regular season Major League Baseball, and of course all the latest fighting news from MMA and UFC all the way to boxing. But online, access a continuous source for all of your sporting wagering information, including live betting, esports, and much, much more. So be sure to head over to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action. Bet online where the game starts. And speaking of betting, which NFL stars move the betting lines the most? Well, since July 18th, Locked On has given all of you the 50 most valuable players in the NFL from the odds makers at Bet Online. Again, available since July 18th on Locked On NFL, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on YouTube. All right, so let's talk about some of the Major League Baseball draft selections. Now, at the conclusion of the Major League Baseball draft, South Carolina had six players or commits get drafted. Of course, Jacob Zibben out of high school was drafted in the 10th round at pick number 301 to the Cleveland Guardians. I briefly talked about him on my last Major League Baseball draft update earlier in the week. Uh, starting pitcher James Hicks ended up getting drafted in the 15th round at pick number 437 to the Baltimore Orioles. James Hicks, of course, coming off of Tommy John's surgery after his elbow sort of gave out on him in his second start of the season in the 2022 season. Um, outfielder slash first baseman slash just monster power hitter uh, to sum it all up, Josiah Seitler, he was drafted in the 15th round at pick number 440 to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Pitcher and high school commit Adam Serwinkowski was drafted in the 15th round at pick 453 to the Cincinnati Reds. Infielder Braylon Wimmer was drafted in the 18th round at pick number 542 to the Philadelphia Phillies. And starting pitcher Noah Hall was drafted in the 20th round at pick number 612 to the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, with all these guys being drafted, you, of course, are probably wondering, well, who's going to stay and who's going to go? Well, I will say this. 
this all is going to depend on the dollar figures that the franchises are going to be willing to spend on these guys for signing bonuses and the like when they go to the minors. And normally when you get drafted higher, like rounds one through five, you get a pretty decent signing bonus. Your slot value is pretty good. And you're more than likely going to want to just go ahead and take the money while you can and go straight to the minors. If you're drafted in the later rounds, it's a little bit more murky. It's not as much of a guarantee. And teams can sort of play around with you at the negotiating table a little bit more. I will admit, I don't understand the Major League Baseball draft as well as probably other people do. Especially now that they've gone from 40 rounds down to 20. I'm sure that probably affects the slot value for all these picks a great deal compared to the way it used to be in their old format. But either way, that's typically the way it works. There's only one guy out of this group that I feel confident in predicting that he'll be back, and that is Noah Hall. I got nothing to go off of with that, but I do think that Noah Hall, who had a 3-5 and record last year, a 4.34 ERA, and 31 walks and 78 strikeouts in 76 and two-thirds innings, Noah Hall really came on strong late in the season this past year, and is somebody that I definitely think has the potential to go to the majors one day, but he got drafted in the last round. His slot value is definitely not going to be very high. It's going to be pretty minuscule. And he is a junior who still does have another year to where he could come back. And I just don't see Noah Hall leaving for that low of a selection. I think Noah Hall could potentially up his draft stock with another year of tape at the power five level for division one college baseball. So admittedly, you know, Noah Hall was thrusted into the starting rotation suddenly at the beginning of the season when James Hicks, of course, went down with his elbow injury that was season ending. So I think knowing that he would be in the starting rotation for a whole off season, being able to prepare for all of that, I think that that would help out Noah Hall a great deal if he came back. And I do believe that he will come back at the end of the day. Now, I feel like James Hicks and Adam Serwankowski would both go if the money was there. Again, James Hicks coming off of Tommy John surgery. I wonder how much the Orioles are going to be willing to give him as a signing bonus for where he got drafted. I imagine it probably would not be a whole lot of guaranteed money. So you could see James Hicks come back. Or you could see him go ahead and go because of the idea that, you know, as you get older, honestly, and if you continue to, you know, sort of kick the can down the road of going to the minors, the Major League Baseball franchises seemingly punish guys who stay in college for longer, which is why I really feel like Josiah Seitler is more than likely gone. I think that round number 15 is a decent selection spot for him and again I'm not exactly sure how much the signing bonus could work out to be based on where he got drafted in this new MLB draft format but Seitler would be coming back for a fifth year at South Carolina he did so well at the plate this past season and even showed some really solid glimpses of being a good fielder uh, at first base so I think that honestly Seitler needs to go now while he can no no point coming back and risking injury. And I do believe that he will, again, as long as there's just enough money where he is slotted. Uh, Braylon Wimber, in my opinion, out of this entire group is probably the biggest wild card. I genuinely don't know what to expect from Braylon Wimmer. I don't know if he could end up leaving for the Philadelphia Phillies or coming back. The main reason why is, I, and, I, and I'll preface what I'm going to say by saying this, I am not going to say Braylon Wimmer did not try his hardest this past year. But I will say there was a lot of games that I watched for the Gamecocks on the baseball diamond. And I watched Braylon Wimmer playing, knowing he's one of the more talented guys on the team, if not the most talented all around. And 
Wimmer just didn't always seem like that he was mentally there, 100% in the game. Now, Wimmer could have been dealing with maybe a hidden injury during last year that maybe the fans didn't know about. And I will say head coach Mark Kingston can't be very quiet about that stuff or at the very minimum, very vague. So that can be hard to pick up on. If maybe you're not at as many games in person. Um, I watched a lot of the games, of course, on ESPN+. And Brandon Wimmer could have also had some stuff going on in his personal life, maybe a relationship ending with somebody or, you know, maybe stuff going on with his family that maybe was really affecting his psyche um, to be able to go out there and play baseball the level he wanted to play. He could have had a bunch of stuff going on that none of us know about. So I'm going to for sure keep that, in, you know, keep that in consideration and give him the benefit of the doubt that that's what happened. But again, there just was a lot of times where at the very least, Wimmer just didn't seem like he was completely there when we were playing ball games. So, you know, it could also mean that, you know, He's just burnt out of college baseball, and he's ready to go even if he got drafted in the 18th round. That could very well be the case as well. So, again, have no idea what to expect from William Wimmer with his upcoming decision. And, again, Jacob Zibin, who I mentioned on my show a couple days back with my Major League Baseball draft update, I would fully expect him to go considering where he got drafted. He got drafted in the 10th round. And, again, even for the new format, that's still a pretty decent selection right there. And, Zippin, especially being a pitcher and with how the volume of pitches that pitchers have to deal with, especially if they're relievers, I would say that Zippin needs to go ahead and go to the minors. And I believe that he'll do just that again, unless maybe, you know, something could happen where he doesn't get as much guaranteed money or even a physical prevents him from end up signing a contract, which the Gamecocks have had that happen with guys who were on the team before, and they wound up coming back when the Gamecocks weren't expecting them to come back. I don't remember their names off the top of my head, but there's a lot of things that can happen with the signing process with all these draft picks. Uh, Kamar Rocker for Vanderbilt got drafted like 10th overall in last year's draft, wound up not signing a contract. He had to play in like a semi-professional league for this whole last year, got drafted again this year at number three overall. So anything can happen with the Major League Baseball draft process. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about real quick to end the show, I'll give you all some of my final overall thoughts from SEC Media Day. So first of all, seems like Nick Saban isn't going anywhere. Nick Saban was on the set of SEC Now talking to Laura Rutledge and uh, Greg McElroy and Jordan Rogers, I believe, a couple of the other analysts that are part of the SEC network. And he talked about how, you know, when it comes to uh, him and his job, you know, that he still loves his job and he enjoys doing it every single day. And to go along with that point, he would go on to mention that, you know, he wants them to start asking apparently the other SEC head coaches where they're getting the notion or the, you know, the information that he is going to retire very soon. Because he pretty much was like, you know, I'm not stupid. I know that these other guys are telling these recruits, listen, Nick Saban can't coach till he's like 125. You know, he's 70, 71, however old he is now. I mean, how much longer do you think he's going to be at Alabama? And he knows that this is used against him in recruiting all the time. And Nick Saban went ahead and decided that you know, for a split second, he was going to let his hair down to the SEC media, which he doesn't do very often. And, you know, in a joking way saying that, yeah, that's not the case. I'm going to coach for a whole lot longer. I got a lot left in the tank and I'm still enjoying this job and going to work every single day. And also to go along with Nick Saban, uh, Jimbo has supposedly moved past the Saban beef. 
which if he did, um, it was pretty daggum quick, I have to admit. After all the personal attacks he made against Nick Saban at that press conference saying that he wasn't slapped enough by his dad as a kid and basically making him out to be like the most evil football coach he had ever been around in his entire career. Uh, Jimbo Fisher turned around at SEC Media Days when he was at the podium giving after his opening remarks, and he stated that uh, you know he still has a lot of great respect for his mentor. And again, this was not the verbiage that he used at all at that uh, at that press conference just a month and a half, two months ago. So the fact that the tune of Jimbo Fisher has changed so quickly is definitely interesting to note. Um, I don't fully believe this is the case. I think that this is a case of where Jimbo Fisher is trying to play nice. He doesn't want to come off as more so of a villain than a victim, which, again, at the beginning, people were saying, you know, Nick Saban should not have made the comments that he made. But then with Jimbo's press conference, people sort of stepped back and were like, whoa, okay, we were not expecting you to go that far. And even from the outside looking in, I don't think that that was warranted. The amount of personal attacks that Jimbo made against Nick Saban. So very interesting to see Coach Fisher make those kind of comments after everything that happened not too long ago. Another takeaway that I had... Uh, the coaches still have very strong opinions on NIL. I obviously talked about how um, earlier in the week about how Lane Kiffin basically called NIL legalized cheating now. Again, don't fully agree with his um, logic on that statement, but I can understand what he is trying to convey with that talking point. Nick Saban said that, you know, there needs to be more parity in college football, that, you know, NIL is going to turn into a battle between the haves and the have-nots. And even Kirby Smart, who was at a Texas High School Association convention, I believe comprised of Texas high school football coaches, a couple days before he went to SEC Media Days, he also chimed in on this. And according to this article that was written by Terrence Moore, who's a contributor for Forbes.com, with Kirby Smart saying, quote, what I can't accept is some young man getting $10,000 a month for four or three years of college. That's $120,000 a year, Smart said, mostly referring to the explosion of NIL windfalls for those much less than the elite of the elite at powerhouse college football programs, continuing by saying, quote, what do you think he's doing with that? Is that actually going to make him more successful in life? Because I promise you, if you handed me $10,000 a month my freshman year of college, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. I believe that. Also, just a reminder, as of yesterday, uh, yeah, Kirby Smart now has a 10-year, $112 million contract, which is the highest and, I believe, most valuable contract a head football coach has ever gotten in college football history. So, yeah, getting a contract like that after making comments like he did earlier this week, um, yeah, that that's not going to look well. That's not going to look right to uh, some of his players and probably a lot of prospective recruits in the coming recruiting classes. And then the last takeaway I have overall does involve South Carolina here. Mississippi State and South Carolina both seem to have become the trendy dark horse picks for the SEC Western and Eastern divisions. Uh, Mississippi State and South Carolina both do have a lot in common in going into this next season. Both of them are returning a lot of experience on both sides of the ball and as an entire team. Both of them have really solid quarterbacks. Mississippi State, obviously, with Will Rogers and South Carolina with Spencer Rattler. Both have staff continuity going from last year into this year. 
And both are being overlooked because, again, they're not sexy picks. They're not teams that have had a ton of history to point to compared to some of the other teams in those divisions. And for that reason, both those teams can definitely be very dangerous this upcoming fall. It does seem like at least people in the SEC media circles who really did their homework before SEC media days this week, when looking at both these teams, saw what they were returning, saw what their schedule was, and saw the overall talent and coaching staff stability that they were bringing and looked at them both and said, you know, there is definitely a path for Mississippi State and South Carolina to both potentially win eight plus games, maybe eight or nine games, I should say, this next season. Who knows? Maybe Mississippi State and South Carolina can be the Ole Miss in Arkansas of 2022. You know, Ole Miss went 10-3 and and had a Sugar Bowl appearance this past season. Arkansas went nine and four winning the Outback Bowl against Penn State. So I could definitely see that happening. And I do think Mississippi State has a chance to be really good this year in Mike Leach's third season. But with that being said, y'all, that is going to do it for today's show of the Locked On Gamecocks podcast. I hope that y'all thoroughly enjoyed it as always. Uh, for those of you who watched Phil Petty play in real life or maybe just knew of Phil Petty, what is your takeaway or your final thought as a lasting memory or as a tribute to one of the best quarterbacks to ever suit up in the Garnet and Black. Uh, what are your thoughts on South Carolina's Major League Baseball draft selections, the guys that got selected? Who do you think is going to end up leaving, and who do you think is going to stay? And what was your biggest takeaways from SEC Media Days? Was it something that, that maybe I did not mention in my final segment? I want to hear your thoughts down below in the comment section if you're watching this on YouTube. But if you're listening to this on an audio podcast app, wherever you get your podcast daily, you can also feel free to shoot me a message at A-Line underscore SC on Twitter. And I will be sure to respond to any replies or comments that I get as quickly as I see them. And, of course, if you've enjoyed the Locked On Gamecocks podcast and you want to get more on the entire SEC conference, then make Locked On SEC your second listen every day. Host Chris Gordy and the local experts of Locked On take you across the SEC in 30 minutes. So make Locked On SEC your second listen after, of course, you listen to the Locked On Gamecocks podcast. And uh, I normally do tell you all to have a great rest of your, you know, whatever day it's going to be. And I'll catch you on the next show. And I do hope that you all have a great Friday and a great weekend. But to end today's show, I'm just going to put up a photo real quick of uh, former Gamecock great Phil Petty, who, again, did tragically pass away yesterday. Once again, thoughts and prayers with the Petty family. And uh, Phil Petty, rest in peace.